Um, <clears throat> you want the brief little story oh, of what happened? Whatever you're comfortable with. I mean, I don't know. Um, I just find it easier to describe. Sure. So we walked out and we heard fireworks, and then we saw the guy with the gun. Lance Kirkland was one of the first students shot at Columbine High School 20 years ago. I convinced myself that it was paintball, it was a senior prank. He's 36 now. He started spraying the ground in front of us and you could kind of hear it and see it. His friend Danny Rohrbaugh was murdered right in front of him. Dan went down and I felt um, like a sharp pain in my foot. My knee felt like it went out and then this knee like got hurt and then it felt like somebody punched me in the chest. He shot me four times. I blacked out and then woke up and I put my hand up to ask for help. He said, sure, I'll help you. And I looked up a little bit and he didn't grab my hand. I just laid back down and he put the shotgun right behind my ear and pulled the trigger. From Rocky Mountain PBS, this is Insight, a podcast companion to the TV show. I'm Lori Jangliha. Our team has spent months trying to understand what mass violence looks like 20 years after the event, how the attack shaped the community, how it changed school as we know it, and how it altered the direction of so many lives, like Lance's. These are the ripples of Columbine. Today, three survivors who all saw people killed, some who were shot themselves, who all told us something about their recovery we didn't expect to hear. Lance Kirkland was one of the first people I tried to find when we started exploring the story about the long-term effects of the violence at Columbine. He was one of the most high-profile survivors because he had been shot so many times. was shot in his neck chest and leg. A bullet shattered his jaw. News reporters loved telling Lance's story. Even though his speech was affected by the shotgun blast to his face, reporters still wanted to hear from him. How do you feel? I I feel great. He's a little hard to understand there, but he told reporters he felt great and was optimistic about his recovery. But since then, we haven't heard much from him, and I wanted to know the rest of Lance's story. What happened to him? I couldn't find a good phone number for him. He wasn't really on social media, so I reached out to family. I think it was a few more weeks before a family friend shared my number with Lance, and then Lance sent me a text. He agreed to meet me for coffee, and when he walked in, he looked so different from that boy in those old news videos. He didn't have the same blonde hair. The scars on his face were mostly hidden behind a scruffy beard. After a few more conversations, Lance agreed to come to our studio for an interview. You're good? Okay, do you need a clap at all? Sure. Physically, how are you doing today? Fine. Yeah. Do you feel any issues or trouble walking or anything like No. No. Okay. Just besides getting older, you know. <laughs> okay. Do you have any- Lance says he doesn't really like talking about the past. He doesn't want to be that guy who was the victim. And so when April comes around, he's hard to find. You know, if I can, like every year around the anniversary, I disappear. Just because I don't want to see it on the news or see it in the paper or have somebody approach me. 20 years ago, reporters had a much easier time finding Lance. 
When he went back to school, it made the news. 16-year-old Lance Kirkland is healing. More than any other student, people want to know what his first day back was like. It's just the normal first day of school. I mean, they... I had no idea how big of a story it was. Um, so that, that just kind of surprised me that so many people wanted my story or, you know, to ask me questions. I didn't really have a problem with it. I felt like I was helping. It sounds strange, but Lance became sort of famous. His dad told me he has a box of photos posing with so many celebrities like Steven Tyler, Shania Twain, John Elway, the Broncos, the Rockies. You know, the whole world came to our aid. That's Lance's dad, Mike. I feel like the Columbine was the real first shooting and you had all, everybody wanted to know about it. There were so many people who were so nice to his family. People would provide perks and autographs, raise money. But at the same time, it was sort of weird getting all of this attention for being shot. I was, I felt like I was following him, trying to pop his head. And because everybody was telling him how great he was and I didn't feel like he should be looked at as like a celebrity because he was a shooting victim. But Mike says it was hard not to get caught up in all of that attention. Reporters wanted to document all of it and it was easy to say yes. Like when Lance felt like he was at the point when he could hunt again, he wanted to test out the same kind of gun that he was shot with. So a Time magazine photographer tagged along. I love to hunt. I love to be out, outdoors doing anything. Um, and so it was important to me to not be afraid. Um, so as soon as I could, I, I went and you know shot my shotgun just to, con- I knew that I, I, I could do it, but I just, I had to confirm it as fast as possible. Mike Kirkland showed me a photo on his wall from that hunting very, trip. This is the side of the face that he was... This is where Lance had been shot, is on this side of his face. And as you can tell, he looks fantastic. I mean, he did so well with healing. It was just amazing. It was somewhere around 35 surgeries, I think. Uh, maybe a few more or less, I don't know. But um, now, I mean, physically I'm fine. Lance's physical healing seemed to overshadow concerns about his mental health. During those early days, Lance said he tried to go to counseling, but it felt like a waste of time. You know, like it was a joke. And I I told myself that, you know, these people aren't helping me and I could be doing something fun right now. So, yeah, I tried. So Lance stepped out of the public eye and grew up fast. He moved out on his own, started working, and about four years after the shooting at Columbine High School, he became a dad. And he just kind of focused on living his life. So for the most part of the last 20 years, uh, I felt mentally fine, physically fine, uh, until about 2015. At that time, I I bought a different business and ran myself way too thin, Um, started drinking a lot. And I think with the, with all the stress, with all the extra stress from trying to run the business and being a single father, and uh, I, it just kind of broke me. And I drank more and more and more. Um, and since then, I mean, I've been in treatment. I've I'm continuing to go to therapy to just try and figure out the um, the PTSD and and how to deal with certain things. I mean, I always kind of looked at, uh, you know, PTSD as somebody with like a weak mind um, that couldn't, you know, deal with whatever situation. I mean, I, I understand that 
people you know that are coming back from war um, have seen horrific things and have been through horrific experiences and I, I kind of gave them a pass um, but uh, you know for other people that were involved in Columbine that weren't shot that some of them weren't even there um, for them to say that they had it uh, I just kind of called BS but now seeing it in myself I'm more sympathetic uh, I understand that it, you know, it can happen to anybody and it can be there and you never really even notice it. Why do you think you didn't, you talked about you gave some people a pass or you know, gave them credit for what they were going through. Why do you think you didn't allow yourself to have that pass? Because Because I, I, I never you know, noticed it. And I figured that you know, if, you, if you do have something like that, um, the symptoms are gonna be immediate. You know, it's gonna be right after the event. So I, I thought that since it had been, you know, over 10 years, that it didn't affect me. Looking back at those early days after the shooting, Lance does have some regrets about his recovery being so public. I've, I've had good and bad experiences with media, um, and the bad ones just seemed to be more and more often to where they would say it would be, you know, a 30-minute interview, an hour interview, and it lasted for almost three hours. Um, and then they would cut it all down to, you know, 30 seconds of me talking and spin my words. Uh, and that, that really showed me as a kid what people are really like, you know, that everybody's out for themselves, for their own gain. And that was kind of a hard lesson to learn at, you know, 15, 16. But just seeing how adults could take advantage of you. I wish that I had, um, if, you know, my, my dad or somebody were to step in, kind of protect me a little bit, say, no, you know, he's not doing this. Uh, just feels like that never happened, and I always said yes. At the time, I was a raging alcoholic, and so I was trying not to drink, but I was trying to get through it, and I'm sure I would have done it differently, but I got through it all. I felt like I was doing the best I could. Their family was already under incredible strain, even before those two boys shot Lance. I had every reason in the world to drink. I had a, my other 16-year-old son five and a half months before Columbine commit suicide. I feel like that I it just felt like everything that could have gone wrong in my life did. These are the kinds of pressures that can break a family. Even though Mike says he's sober now and feeling happier about his life, he and Lance don't really talk anymore. And right now, Lance is focused on his recovery. Where do you hope to be, you know, let's say five years from now? I don't know. Happy. I mean, that's all that matters. So how does a mother tell her kids she survived a mass shooting at school? Dewada Watt talked with my colleague John Ferruja for our TV program and said she's still trying to figure that out. Do they even know you were at Columbine? They don't know. They might now when this is occurring. Yeah. Dewada had never told her story on camera before she agreed to sit down with John. Will you actually at some point sit them down and say, or, or if somebody, or will you wait for them to find out that you were there? 
how do you think? Um, I don't know. I was debating as to whether or not to show, to be like, hey, mommy's gonna be on this show. Back when Columbine happened, photos of Dewada were on the front page of newspapers and magazines, but she's largely avoided publicity and hasn't shared the story yet with some of the people closest to her, her two kids. I mean, they're young too, so they wouldn't, I think, fully understand the gravity of the situation. Um, I don't want to hide anything from them that has uh, changed me into the person that I am today. She joked to John that she didn't really want to do this interview at all, but she felt like she should because her story might mean something to someone. We heard the librarian talking, um, saying something that just seemed like unreal, almost like there's two boys with guns outside. Those two boys had just shot Lance Kirkland and his friends outside of the school, then headed inside toward the library where Dewada and her group of friends were spending their lunch period. And I just remember this librarian saying, everyone get underneath the table. Everyone get under the table now. We all looked at each other, and I remember Lauren turning and asking whether or not this was a joke and if it was a senior prank. And, you know... It's, it's not really funny at all. Those would be some of Lauren Townsend's final words. I will say that when they entered the library, um, I started praying. Um, I mean, that's the only thing I knew to fall back on was the faith that I grew up with. So I remember saying the Our Father when I heard the gunshots coming in through the library and the glass being shattered around. A police report says one of the killers shot as fast as his gun would shoot all under Dewada's table. All four of the girls with her were shot. But Dewada, incredibly, wasn't hurt. And after they were done with our table, and I felt myself, and I was like, I, I think I'm okay. I, I, I think I'm all right. And I remember just sitting there like, what am I supposed to do now? What do I do? I'm looking at my friends. Lauren's not waking up. I'm, I'm seeing what everyone else is doing, and everyone seems like they're not moving. They're not waking up. And I don't know how long it was before we could hear that we could get out somehow. And I remember seeing Gina, and she was hurt. And I said, we got to get out right now. This is the only way we got to go. We got to get out right now. She's like, I can't. I can't move. And I was like, oh, my gosh. I was like, but we got to go. We got to just get out of there. Like, what are we going to do? We have to leave. And so I just remember I, I bolted out of there. I don't even, I just smoke. Dewada was a senior when all of this happened, ready to head off to college. And when she tries to remember high school, the violence in the library has pretty much wiped everything else away. I don't remember freshman. I don't remember my sophomore year. I don't remember my junior. I don't remember graduating. Barely. I remember Columbine. Mixed in with the awful memories was deep survivor's guilt. She regretted surviving, regretted not being hurt, regretted running away to safety and leaving a hurt friend behind. Duwata kept wishing she had done everything differently or at least attempted something heroic to protect her friends. Why didn't I put myself in front of the gun instead? Um, why didn't I roll my body over Lauren? Um, why didn't I pull Gina out with me? Um, it's... It was more of like punishment, essentially, because I wasn't injured. I was really angry at God, really upset, just 
Why was I still alive? Why didn't I get hurt? Why am I still here? We've spoken with a lot of survivors and their families working on this project the past few months. Dewada is one of the only survivors we talked to who said she didn't go to counseling at all. Oh, I mean, I am a firm believer that I feel like everyone should go to counseling. Have I actually taken my advice? No, I have not. But healing doesn't always happen in a therapist's office. Dewada has leaned on her faith. A big part of it has been forgiving herself for not being hurt and not being a superhero and somehow saving her friends. I do feel like my faith has probably been the backbone of helping me to um, recover or continue to recover or whatever you want to call it. I mean, I was saying the Our Father while I was there. I, I mean, I was like, was that what protected me? You know, I, there's, there was a sense of I was being protected. And I mean, whether you believe her that or not, that's what I believe because I have that faith. There's a reason why I survived. Because I survived, I'm a stronger person. Because I survived, my daughter is here, my son is here, I'm married, I have people around me that love me, I'm God-fearing. Because I survived, I have something to do in this world. Lactation support in Stuata. Now Dewada is a nurse. She helps new moms learn how to nurse their babies. Oh, yeah, that's great. Can you tell me more about that baby? A career path she found because she survived the shooting at Columbine High School and visited her injured friend in the hospital. I was just watching these nurses and the medical team, like going in there and caring for her and taking care of them, um, taking care of her. And I was like, I want to, I want to do that. I want to be someone um, who takes care of someone else when they can't do it themselves. Go see that kiddo later on this afternoon. Thanks so much. Uh huh. Bye bye. This is what it sounds like at Mackay Hall's house sometimes when there's a late start at school. There's bacon and sausage simmering on the skillet. Milk or water. By the way, I'm gonna also give you milk. He lives in a cozy brick home north of Denver with his wife and three little girls. Uh, Grace is eight, Miley's five, and Clara was just born a couple weeks ago. So. Um, when most of America last heard from Makai 20 years ago, he was a 16-year-old boy just released from the hospital where his leg was treated for a gunshot wound. He was wheeled in front of news cameras so he could talk to reporters about his heroic act in the library where most of the killing happened. They threw like a homemade um, explosive between a couple of us that were injured. So um, I threw it away from us. Soft-spoken Mackay sounded so mature. I found it um, really easy to think of all the bad things that that um, have come from this, but it's really it really makes you feel good to think of how, the human compassion and how everyone came together to help us to help us out. It was easy for people who watched Mackay on the news to think, "Great, that kid's gonna be okay." To feel the hope that we all wanted to feel after a senseless public tragedy like Columbine, and Mackay is okay now. But in between, behind the scenes, Makai suffered for years. I, I think for a number of years after, 
maybe five to ten years after Columbine, there was this thing that was just on repeat in my brain. The images of the shooting were, you know, uh, pretty clear. And the violence of it, seeing people maimed and, and, and hurt and dead, those things, you know, kind of, it took a while for them to, to leave. On the day of the attack, Makai and his friends were in the library during lunch. He was cramming for a test. We heard gunshots out in the parking lot, and we thought maybe somebody was lighting off firecrackers. The gunfire was just so loud. He says they barely had time to hide under the table when the gunman came in and took aim right at his group of friends. You know, that first volley hit my my right leg and my the side of my face and my chest. And so I immediately was just in abject pain. And the only thing I think that I could sense was, I'm, I'm going to die. Uh, they're going to come up and shoot me in the head. Uh, so, you know, I, I laid there for a little bit and, um, you know, just hoping that, that they wouldn't come nearer. Uh, I can remember Patrick trying to administer first aid on my leg, and in doing that, he raised up a little bit, and, um, you know, I witnessed him being shot in the head. Um, And so after that, I just think I tried to play dead. Makai managed to run out of the library eventually, but after that escape, it took him a very long time to move forward. I was very depressed, uh, very angry, that I couldn't get over the fact that um, I had gone through something and, and I felt like the world owed, owed me something. Um, and I, I kind of had to find out the truth about that. And, and that's that um, I, nobody owes me anything. <laughs> it was very unfortunate that I, I was part of that. I think for a long time I tried to play that off like, like, it wasn't that big of a deal. I didn't speak about it much. And, um, but it, it, you know, it had a big effect. I was young, I was a boy. Uh, and so that made a big impression. Um, it created a lot of fear, which I kind of had to work through. He turned to alcohol. I had this great excuse to, to kind of go, go wild. Uh, and I found that it temporarily fixed things. Like, it, it killed the fear. It, it made me feel safe. And um, I kind of ran with that and to the point where I got sick. My mom called me up one day, and I had woken up out of a blackout. And she was like, you're going to rehab. And I was like, uh, you know, don't do that. I don't don't send me to rehab. And I um, looked through the phone book for a, um, a chapter of AA and um, started attending 12-step meetings. And that, <clears throat> to be honest with you, really helped me to think about things like fear. Makai says he's been through intense therapy. He bounced around doing different jobs, trying to find a direction. I remember, I think after uh, the Columbine thing, visiting the hospital a lot and going to see people that I knew. And 
obviously being at the hospital for a little bit. And, and I remember, you know, admiring uh, healthcare personnel and providers. And always thought that that was something that, you know, I could possibly do. Uh, a couple changes to this. Like Dewada and a lot of other survivors of the Columbine shooting, Makai found meaning in healthcare, and he's now a charge nurse in the neurological ICU at UC Health University of Colorado Hospital. She's on the vent. There's the part that I feel I'm able to comfort somebody, but I also, you know, have uh, have been able to be comforted by by being able to to serve in that capacity. I think, unfortunately, violence you know, happens in many people's lives. Uh, it's an unfortunate thing. Um, but I, part of the, the comfort that I draw from it and, and part of the comfort that I think some of the patients that I've had have experienced is that there's a common thread and that um, to say something simple about it would be to say that I, you know, I can listen. I can listen to what your story is. In one of his first healthcare jobs, he fell for a coworker named Beth. That was a big fear of mine too, was being in a relationship um, and letting somebody in. Uh, and I still struggle with that, uh, but it's gotten much better. Um, and meeting Beth, who's my wife, um, through working at a hospital was uh, amazing, and I, you know, I got to experience what it, what it's like to let somebody in, and then to to be a part of a relationship. I felt like I, I have gotten out of that cycle of putting things on repeat in my in my brain, and now I've got this this family, this thing going on um, that I put my energy in into, and um, it's been probably the best thing I've ever done. You guys ready? Yeah. Let's wanna, do it. Rock and roll. On this snowy day in Colorado, <laughs> Makai is walking his older girls to school. <laughs> Even though they're still young, he's already told them what happened at Columbine. You know, I stated it plainly. I said, when I was a boy um, at my school, somebody shot me. And they were very angry. Um, it's a very unusual thing to happen, although it does happen more and more. And they seem to, you know, receive that in a positive way. I wish they could live like I did before Columbine, where, yeah, school is a safe place to go, and um, there's no need to, to have a crippling fear about going out and living your life. That fear that Makai talks about, he says it still exists sometimes. Yeah, that, that will still happen. Uh, I'm not, not immune to those, those episodes. Uh, and I think it, it, to some degree, always will. Um, uh, there'll be this, this component of unmanageability of my life. And I think that that stems from, from the trauma of experiencing Columbine. I don't have any great tips on how to, like, go through one of those things, it's ugly. You know, if you find yourself after an experience like this or having experienced violence in a bad place, um, it's not 
hopeless, that there's a way to kind of come back to the light. And if, if anything, there's, you can find some meaning in, in tragedy. One of the reasons Makai agreed to talk with us after all these years was to relay his message of hope. He talked about violence and how it happens in a lot of people's lives, but he also talked about how trauma fades and positivity inevitably finds a way to shine through. All of these survivors we've talked to have struggled at various times and sometimes multiple times in their lives, but they have all found hope and light throughout their lives as well. If you haven't already, subscribe to Insight from RMPBS on Apple Podcasts or wherever else you get your podcasts. Here's what's coming on our next episode of our Ripples of Columbine series. Realistic shooting drills. I hope I never see another one of these events where a kid's hiding under a table for cover. But are they too real? I think that that's very traumatic. It causes trauma in kids when it doesn't necessarily need to be there. I'm Lori Jangliha, and this is Insight, investigative reporting from Rocky Mountain PBS in Denver, Colorado. Our producers are Paul Caroli and Brittany Freeman. Sound editing and design by Matthew Simonson. Our music is provided by First Com and Blue Dot Sessions. Special thanks to House of Pod in Denver. To go beyond Columbine, check out our TV programs, The Ripples of Columbine, airing on Rocky Mountain PBS. You can find those at rmpbs.org slash beyondcolumbine.